All right, good afternoon, everybody. Well, I put together some slides because when Stephen told me I had the four o'clock, well, now it's five o'clock hour, I knew I was going to need to uh, have some slides to keep us all awake. So, you know, it'll help us to, to keep, uh, keep on focus. But it's a real privilege to be with you this summer's day and to see friends and to see people from Troy and folks on a Saturday. It's just kind of cool being at church on a Saturday. It's just a nice, nice experience. But it is hot outside. So, Stephen, thank you for no tent and not having dinner out there because that would be a picture of hell. And I would not enjoy that at all. So, it's good to be in the air conditioning. Man, have I got soft. <laughs> Commenting on the scriptures, the, uh, the great Smith Wigglesworth, he said this with regards to God's word. He said, the Bible is the word of God. It is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, inexpressible in valor, infinite in scope, regenerative in power, infallible in authority, universal in interest, personal in application, and inspired in totality. Truly the Word of God changes a man, a woman, until they become the epistle of God. It transforms the mind, it changes our character, and it moves us forward grace to grace. And that's a good thing. This word we're about to receive, the one that Smith Wigglesworth just spoke of, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the power of your word that changes us. We thank you that at the entrance of your word, there is light and life. We thank you that your word is spirit and life. And I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you reveal to your people truth, show them more of your character, Holy Spirit, I pray that you help me in all of my weaknesses, that you might communicate through me and show me exactly what it is that you would have for me to communicate to the people. Help me, I pray. Father, we look to you. We look to your word. And we thank you that you have given us these gifts, the gifts of spirit and word. And we know that they agree and they change us. So we receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible here today, would you turn to the minor prophet, the book of Zephaniah? Steve taught last night and will teach tomorrow from Jonah, the prophet. And we didn't collaborate, but I'm speaking today from a minor prophet as well, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a very small book. He's called a minor prophet, not because the worker's his words was minor, it was just the scope of his work, that is the length and the duration of his word, was only just three chapters. It wasn't like Isaiah 66 chapters, it was just a small. But make no mistake, just those three chapters are life-changing because they are the word of God, and it is powerful. Zephaniah was a prophet of God who was called to bring a message of judgment and warning to the people of Judah. And he did this in the 7th century during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah reigned from 640 B.C. to 602 or 609 B.C. And he was one of the last 
He was the last godly king in Judah. Josiah, the king you remember, is the one who found that long-lost book of the law in the temple. And there he tried to reform the people of God who had drifted so far away into idolatry and wickedness. And so Josiah labored to reform the people. And Zephaniah and Jeremiah were part of that work of bringing the judgment and the word of the Lord to the people to call Judah back to repentance and trust in the Lord afresh. So what I want to do today is give a very, very brief overview of the book of Zephaniah, and I want to let the main points of the book have their say. And then, as we go along, I want to apply the teachings to ourselves. It is absolutely always amazing to me that when you look at prophetic scripture written thousands of years ago, just how relevant it is for us today. No wonder the Apostle Paul says that these things took place as examples for us, written down for our instruction that we might not desire evil as they did. So let's take heed to the prophet and let's learn and spend some time this afternoon with our friend Zep, Zephaniah. We're going to get to know him. We're going to meet him someday, and we'll want to make sure we can talk a little bit about what he wrote. So the first part of Zephaniah, really all of chapter 1, it announces a very serious judgment that was befalling God's people and the surrounding nations for their sin and rebellion against God. And the purpose, of course, was to compel the people to repent and to turn and come back to God. It is not unusual in prophetic books that they would move from oracles of cursing to oracles of blessing and promise. And we'll get to the oracles of blessing and promise because that indicates that judgment is not God's final word for his people, but that salvation is of the Lord. And that's what Steve reminded us of last night. Remember when he talked about Jonah who came out of the great fish when he was spit up like a baby coming out of the womb. Salvation, new birth, renewal. And that's God's heart for his people is that we would know renewal and his grace and his promises. Zephaniah's book begins with one of the most dramatic statements and declarations of coming judgment found anywhere in Scripture. Zephaniah's description of the calamity that's about to fall upon Judah, it echoes back to the days of Noah regarding that judgment. And so in Zephaniah chapter 1, at the very beginning, we read these words in verse 2 and 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow, that'll get you sitting up in your seat when you hear such incredible words. 
Here the wrath of God is on full undiluted display against rebels, against those who are defying God. And those who think that such language is too harsh haven't really fully considered the evil nature of sin against a holy and righteous God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In chapter 12 of Hebrews it says that when we come to worship we worship in reverence and in awe for our God is a a consuming fire. We need to remember these truths and and I really believe the church needs a a, a new experience in the holiness of God and in the fear of the Lord anew. In verse 5, Zephaniah describes two other forms of idolatry. There were people in Judah who they would bow down on their roofs to the host of heaven. As Stephen was talking earlier about that style of housing, they had these flat roofs and people would get up on their roofs at night and these people would bow down and what the prophet was referring to is they were worshiping the sun the moon, and the stars. It was terrible idol worship. Paul said six centuries later, he says, these people, they were claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory for the immortal God for the derived glory of created things. Rather than worshiping the creator, they worship creation. They pulled a John Denver. And what a mistake that leads to. Then secondly, there was another group of people who tried to serve two masters. And let me tell you, that's not a good idea. In verse 5b in Zephaniah, in chapter 1, those who bow down and serve the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Milcom is another name for Moloch. Moloch, as you know, was the national god of the Amorites. God will not share his glory with another. What Israel was doing was a pure violation of the first commandment that you will have no other gods before me. Before me is a simple Hebrew expression and it means in preference to me or in my presence or even in competition with me. God will not tolerate such mixture. They were being influenced by these other nations. They were worshiping Moloch. They were influenced to engage in their idols and their gods. And this mixture absolutely aroused God's displeasure. I want to remind us today about what an idol is. An idol isn't just thinking about it as a stone and a wood carving, but rather an idol is anything that takes our focus and our reliance off of God. So you can think about that definition and begin to realize that we got to be very careful because we can fall into idolatry ourselves very simply. John Calvin quipped and he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Our heart is, a, is an idol factory, constantly churning out new things to pull our reliance away from God. And so we must be careful and alert to keep our hearts steadfast upon the Lord. And then in chapter 3 and verse 2, here we find the problem with the people in Jerusalem was stated very simply, very plainly, 
not complicated, and I so appreciate the prophet's clarity. I love clarity. And so the prophet, he says, here's what the problem in Jerusalem, this is the problem that's going on. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 2. In verse 1, he says, Jerusalem is now considered as a rebellious and a defiled city. And in verse 2, he simply says regarding the people of God, regarding Jerusalem, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She doesn't trust the Lord. She doesn't draw near to her God. God has given his people his law, and he has sent to them his prophets who will tell them what is good and to tell them what evil to avoid. But she accepted no correction. She listened to no one. She didn't draw near to God. She didn't accept the words of the prophet. The essence of the sin that the people were committing here was the sin of self-sufficiency. Oh boy, self-sufficiency. They wouldn't listen to anybody. They won't accept correction from anybody, not even God. They didn't need God. They didn't trust him and they would not draw near to him. And I'm here to say that there are people then and now who are happy to pay a little bit of homage to God. You know, when you hear the, the axiom, when you hear the, uh, the maximum referring to God as, you know, a little token to the man upstairs. Oh, I hate that phrase, by the way. The man upstairs is so condescending. And people sometimes will just do a token trip to church on the holidays. And it's just a terrible place to be. Because of the fall, there is in every human heart the sinful desire, the insatiable longing for self-determination, autonomy. People want to do their own things for their own glory, for their own happiness. And when man does not, see, man does not cease to be a worshiping creature when he rejects the true God, rather he searches out a God made in his own image, doesn't he? Or he will search out a philosophy to live by that accommodates his own autonomy. I'm here to say that pluralism is still on the rise today. It is still going on like in the days of the book of Judges, everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. You hear this phrase all the time, well, whatever is right for you or whatever makes you happy. People are okay with you and I to believe in God and to live by the standards of Scripture, the standards of the Word of God, as long as you don't deny them what they want. They're happy for you to have the Word of God. They're happy for you to trust in the Scriptures as long as you don't deny the opposite or the antithesis of what they believe. And they will quickly say, come on, man, we all just got to get along. We just got to get along. Well, I'm sorry. It doesn't work like that for us. It's not possible. James chapter 4 tells us that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. And therefore, whoever makes a friend of the world makes an enemy of God. Not a lot of wiggle room there. Not a lot of wiggle room. We must obey God rather than man. How many can say amen? amen. Well... These are challenging times in which we live. Being an American is a wonderful thing. The freedoms that we enjoy 
our system of government, the access to information and education, the thriving economy, these are all great and wonderful things. We say hallelujah. But just because in America there are these great benefits and freedoms, it certainly doesn't mean that God approves of the choices that we make or the direction that we're going. There are many, many pitfalls in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Many. I mean, you could start naming them off. Abortion, right? Racism still on the rise. The LGBTQ and some other letter will be coming soon. Communities. Redefining of the families. These are disastrous things. Legalizing of marijuana and driving buzzed. Crazy stuff. Freedom of expression leading to crazy programming on television. I mean, it's scary stuff. I saw, I told Steve, I saw recently, and it just freaked me, I about fell out of the chair. Two men romantically kissing on my television set. I was like, you got to be kidding me. It is just, it's startling. It's startling, but it's the way things are moving. But even on a different note, the great benefits in America that we enjoy, like homes and vehicles and air conditioning and, and, and entertainment and vacations and toys and hobbies, these can also be a pitfall to move us away from our priority of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Autonomy and self-sufficiency can lead us away from pure devotion to God, as Paul and Zephaniah is telling us. So the day of the Lord's judgment was coming upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their arrogant refusal to seek the Lord and to take refuge in him. Chapter 1 also indicates where this independence comes from. And God's wrath was certainly against those who love money and rely on gold and silver and those who think they need nothing and they have no perceived needs. Sounds like America, doesn't it? He says in verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Their false gods and idol worship which they engaged in from the surrounding community of the Amorites, it's not going to save them their own cleverness and their autonomy. They, they refused to listen to anybody. They thought they were smart enough and self-sufficient. That's not going to save them, nor will their money save them. God was removing from them all vestiges of any kind of hope and stripping them of any of that. He's saying, your education won't help you. Your money's not going to help you. Nothing you've got is going to help you. You're going to bend the knee and you're going to serve me. I want to highlight to us today, specifically in our study, what this independence, this autonomy was doing to Judah, a behavior that completely aroused God's displeasure, and it had our Lord walking the dark streets of Jerusalem with a searchlight in his hand. It's found in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Look at what was happening. Zephaniah records, he says, It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men 
who are, listen to this, stagnant in spirit and who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder. Their houses will be desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Wow, such imagery the prophet gives us. The Lord walking the streets of Jerusalem at night with a lamp. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. The Lord sees. And when he's got his searchlight out, let me tell you, you ain't hiding. What was he looking for? What was the Lord searching the street for? Zephaniah tells us he was looking for those who were stagnant in spirit, who were saying in their heart, the Lord will not do good and the Lord will not do evil. He was walking the streets looking at their fine houses. He was looking at their well-manicured vineyards. He was looking at their safe deposit boxes and their 401k programs. Those who were saying in their heart, the Lord will not do good or evil. Understand here, my friends, that it wasn't that they were denying God's existence. No. They were not denying God's existence. What they were denying is his activity in time and space. They were denying his activity in either blessing or punishing them. They didn't think God was active in history, and people today believe the same thing. It's simply called deism. Deism is the belief that there is a God who created the world, but he does not intervene in the affairs of the world. God just started the world, and he lets people figure out how to live. It's up to us. We hold the destinies of our lives in our own hands, the destinies of our families, our homes, our cities, even our nation. And many Americans, many people, maybe they espouse Christianity or not, they do find themselves as practicing deists, thinking, not the old song we used to say, he's got the whole wide world in his, we, we got the whole wide, see, we think we do. We don't. But that's what a deist thinks. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, look at what he says regarding deism, regarding the idea that man is in charge. He says, the view that God has left the world on its own propagates the huge potential for human pride and fear. We believe that all success, progress, and good fortune are the result of our own hard work and efforts. We pat ourselves on the back and place ever more confidence in our own achievements. This kind of pride in the amazing nature of human progress, it drove the Enlightenment movement. But it also came crashing down when in the 20th century revealed how progress could lead to world wars, economic collapse, ethnic cleansing, and the atomic bombs. Wow. This is that view that we need to be careful of. The Bible portrays God differently. 
He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is engaged. He is the one who hears our prayers. He responds to prayer. He shows mercy. He shows mercy to Jonah. He shows mercy to Nineveh. He shows mercy to you and I. And we are grateful. He shows us grace. He brings justice to the oppressed. And most significantly, he becomes a human himself, identifying with us as the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wonderful. Again, deism is the belief that there's a God who created the world but does not intervene in the world's affairs. And Zephaniah's prophecy was against those who were stagnant in spirit or another version, the New King James says, they were settled in complacency, saying that the Lord will not do good or evil. Now, Zephaniah here is using wine fermentation language when he says that men are complacent or stagnant in spirit. The King James Version says they are thickening on the dregs of their wine. Settling, in the King James Version, settling on their lees. The dregs or the lees are that sediment that forms in the fermentation process of making wine. It gets in the wine vat. And the lees, these little mm, bits and pieces... They eventually sink to the bottom of the barrel where they harden. And the imagery here, settling on your lees or being stagnant in spirit, it indicates that you're just floating along. You're taking it easy. You're having a very leisurely and casual approach to God. In the actual wine vat, the lees or the sediment, it hardens over time. And so the imagery, again, is one having a hardened lifestyle. A person who settled on his lees is one who, through spiritual idleness and ease, he's gradually become morally indifferent, tolerant of his own lack of spiritual drive, and ultimately hardened to God and indifferent to sin. In the process, he becomes blind to his own spiritual state. And no wonder that person would say, Ah, God's not going to do good, and he's not going to do evil. Settled on our lees, indifferent. Friends, I, I would say, I think if we're going to be fair, if we're going to be honest and hold the mirror up to ourselves, we'd have to say that complacency and stagnation is still a real threat to God's people today. I think we'd have to say that. I know in my life, I've had to repent time and again. Lord, forgive me for being too casual. Forgive me for going through the motions. Forgive me, Lord, for getting locked into routine and just thinking that I could just go through the motions with you. It's a very easy thing to slide into, and we need to be vigilant and aware of being stagnant in spirit. The people were in the position of facing God's punishment because they were simply, ready for this, too comfortable. Man, just too comfortable. The text itself that we're looking at 
I'm not making this up. It's coming straight to us from the words of the prophet. It specifically mentions wealth. It mentions houses and vineyards that became their focus to the neglect of serving and honoring God. Here at New Covenant Church last week, Stephen reminded us uh, this past week that comfort can easily become the enemy of progress. Comfort becomes the enemy of advancement. So you see, we have to be very careful about not allowing our comforts to dictate what we do. And what people did was they were enjoying the blessings of God without being responsible to God for those blessings. We must do we, we must remember where these blessings come from. We need to remember to honor God for all of his goodness in our lives. And as a result of the people becoming too comfortable, complacent, and stagnant in spirit, the result was they believed that they were in control. They believed that they can dictate the terms. They had no time, no desire for God. And they were stagnant in spirit towards God. Now, what does it look like? I, I chewed on this for a while. I, I meditate. I thought, well, what, what does stagnant in spirit, what does stagnant in spirit towards God look like? I'm going to just throw out what I think it looks like and where we need to be perhaps on guard. And maybe the Lord will show you some things about yourself and about others that you love. But for starters, I believe that being stagnant in spirit keeps us from improving our service to God and his kingdom. In other words, you just stay where you're at. You don't try to advance. You wouldn't do that in your own careers, right? Everybody that, that's sane in their careers, they, they want to do better. They want to improve. They want to go up the ladder where they can. They want to take an advancement where opportunity presents itself. Why would we not think any differently in the kingdom of God? that we would like to advance and we'd like to learn more. We'd like to be more responsible and have more responsibility and maybe move in the gifts of the Spirit and, and learn and, and stretch ourselves and do some new things for the Lord rather than just being complacent. And I'll just stay and I'll just sit in my same spot and I'll do what I always do. Complacency looks, uh, it, sorry, it locks us into the crippling effects of routine and as we all know routine can lead to a lot of boredom it really can in every area of life going through the motions without thought for how our lives affect our brothers and sisters or the advancement of the kingdom of Christ but our involvement I'm here to tell you our involvement with our brothers and sisters it is their miracle. When you engage and involve, it's the miracle that they long for and need. Further, I would simply say that complacency can breed a very casual <laughs> and soft view of sin. I'm very easy on myself when it relates to my sin. And you know, we have to ask ourselves, is there something we're just allowing to live in us, a sin that we're not identifying, that we've made peace with, that we're not mortifying that element in our own lives. We have to think about that because Paul tells us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. 
He says, God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the, fr from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap life. But God is not mocked. And so we must be very casual or careful not to have a casual view of sin. Complacency, being stagnant towards God, I believe as well, can keep one from expecting anything from the Lord. You just don't expect it because the opposite of complacency is the opposite of faith. Faith expects things from the Lord, right? Complacency says, like the one Zephaniah was talking about, the Lord won't do good or evil. Expecting nothing from the Lord. And also complacency can cause us to miss opportunities for ministering Christ to others. Again, thinking, well, somebody else will do it, or, oh, that's the pastor's job, or the elders will get to it, or that's for the leaders of the church to do. I want to just challenge us to think fresh and ask ourselves even hard questions. Where are we at, and are we fresh as we need to be? Because complacency and stagnation left unchecked will do what Steve warned us of last night, which was be sure not to forget the Lord. Because when we become casual, we can easily forget the Lord. And this is what Moses, hundreds of years earlier, warned the people of Israel about with the same issues that Zephaniah was warning the people about. You begin to see there must be a thread, a theme going on here with regards to complacency and stagnation and forgetting the Lord's. And it always seems to center around homes, wealth, vineyards, fields, abundance. Oh, wow. It always seems to center there. I think the Lord is showing us something. Look at the words of Moses. Of Moses. It's the same as Zephaniah. He says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore your, to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you didn't build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, and you'll eat and be satisfied and then watch yourself. Why? so that you don't become stagnant in spirit towards God. Watch yourself. That you don't become complacent toward God. Watch yourself so that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Every one of us, my friends, have been brought out of the land of slavery. Because I'm telling you, I was bound to sin, and I was a slave to the evil one in sin, and I've been set free. How can I ever forget what God has done for me? Now, I hasten to say, in case you think Mike's got off his rocker, he's getting old, he's getting cantankerous, he's 60 this year, something's happened to him. <laughs> I'm so young. Good. It's the new 40. I'm here to say that wealth is not wrong, okay? But we must never put it before the Lord. Jesus simply said this. He said, 
no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God in wealth. Steve Adelini once taught, and I thought it was so brilliant when he was teaching the Ten Commandments. And I wrote it down, I remember it and, it, and the Lord reminded me of it as I was doing the preparation for this teaching. Steve once taught us, and I believe it fully, that God prescribes tithing and giving as the antidote to covetousness. That's very good. That God prescribes our tithing and giving as the antidote to covetousness. God calls us to be generous to his purposes and to pay our tithes. You see, when we sit down and we write out our tithe check, what are we doing? We are reminding ourselves of where our source comes from. We are saying that, Lord, you have been good to us and we've received this great wealth. And Lord, I with joy am writing out what belongs duly to you. You are my first fruits. You are my source. You are my supply. And we stir up our hearts. And, and it, it grieves me that when we get to the tithes and the offerings that sometimes we get casual or stagnant in spirit when we pay our tithe. We should be rejoicing, realizing all of the benefits and all of the blessing that comes when we pay that tithe and give that offering because it will keep us from covetousness. It will keep us from stagnation and complacency. I believe that. God has done that. He's given us that remedy. The Apostle Paul, he weighs in on this truth that Zephaniah was expounding on. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's what Paul tells us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Man, isn't that a great word? Man, in a society that is not content without the new shiny thing, isn't it wonderful to know that godliness with contentment, it's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we could take nothing out of the world. If we got food and clothing with these, let's be content. For those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptations, to a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And through craving, some has wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then he goes on and the Apostle Paul in verse 17 of, of 1 Timothy 6 he gives Timothy, who is leading the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was a very large apostolic center. Thousands of people. Huge church. And Timothy was leading this work, and Paul gave his son in the faith great advice to help him to move the church forward and for him to stay strong in sound doctrine. And he says to his son, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of life that is truly life. In obedience to the word of God, I want to charge you who are rich. You're all rich. 
If you're wondering if you're thinking, well, the guy next to me, maybe, but certainly not me. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I've traveled the world. I know what it is for the majority, the vast majority of the population of our world to live on less than $500 a month. I've seen it. I know them. I've been in their hovels, their huts, their mud stick thatched places. I've walked their streets. I've seen that the electric won't come on. I see there's no running water. I know how rich and blessed we are. I know it. I am. So I charge you in humility. Don't be proud or haughty. Don't put your hope in your wealth. Put your hope in God. And those of you who are savvy in investments, let me give you a hot stock tip. Be generous and share and give. Because if you'll do that, let me tell you the hot stock. Ready for this? Wall Street can't compete. The Fortune 500 companies cannot compete with God's returns. They can't. And Paul tells us here regarding a great investment program. He says, you be rich, you be generous towards the purposes of God. He says, here's what's going to happen for you. You're going to be storing up for yourself a treasure as a good foundation for the future. In other words, in all of your generosity, in all of your giving, God has his ledger and he has an accounting book. And all of that giving, every dime, every penny, everything that you've sown towards the kingdom, he is storing that up and that's becoming an investment, a foundation, something that he has for you in the age to come. And I'm telling you, it's better than your 401k program. I'm promising you. It is a firm foundation that will amaze you for all eternity. So as you're giving, as you're paying your tithe, as you're avoiding covetousness, as you're avoiding stagnation of spirit towards God, recognize <laughs> that you're storing up for yourselves, for the future, a beautiful firm foundation for the age to come. Glory to God. Glory to God. We notice that it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We notice that God is generous. He's extravagant. He's dealt bountifully with us. Our boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. So don't become proud or haughty. Place your hopes in God, not the uncertainty of riches. It's a warning that the blessings that come from the hand of God, if they're not regulated, they can certainly lead our hearts astray, making us complacent to the things of God. That's what Zephaniah warns. That's what the Apostle Paul warned. That's what the Apostle Moses, the builder, warned. So what's the remedy to keep our hearts regulated, to keep ourselves focused and fully delighting in God and treasuring him above everything, as John Piper says? What is the remedy of being stagnant in spirit? Paul says to Timothy, charge them to do good, to be rich in good works. Be generous and willing to share. As Steve Adelini taught, giving and tithing is the remedy to covetousness. And also we can say the remedy to stagnation 
and complacency is being rich in good works. Rich in good works. Now, good works, there's a criteria. You can't just say, you know, this is a good work and that's a good work. There is a biblical criteria that will qualify it as a good work or not a good work. So, sit up on the edge of your seats and I'm going to tell you what is a biblical qualified good work from just something that is nice, but something that weighs strong with the Lord. The Westminster Divines in chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, they define for us specifically what is a good work in the eyes of God. And it is defined this way. A good work is done in obedience to God's commandments. In other words, it's according to the word of God. They are the fruits and the evidences of true and lively faith. In other words, your good work is born of faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, that is our union with Christ. We edify their brethren. We adorn the profession of the gospel. We make the gospel attractive by these good works. We stop the mouths of adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have in the end eternal life. Further, a good work is their ability to do these good works is not at all of themselves, no, but it is holy from the Spirit of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Here, let me break it down, because you're probably looking at it, what did he just say? That was a lot of stuff. Well, it's done according to God's word. That's pretty straightforward. When the Bible tells you to do it, you do it. It's done in faith, not begrudgingly. It's not done reluctantly. It's not done because you have to. It's born of faith. It's done to help others. It's done to make the gospel attractive. It's done to glorify Jesus, not for somebody to notice you or me. It's done through the empowering of the Spirit of Christ. That's how it happens. You know, I love the way the Apostle Paul kept, him, you know, kept himself centered. He kept himself centered on the mission. And what he did was, he was one who was able to not become stagnant or complacent during the difficult times when all of Asia left him. And he didn't become complacent when great successes, when extraordinary miracles took place and thousands were won through the gospel, through his ministry. He didn't then take it easy. He says this about his own life to keep him from being complacent. Paul says this, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. You're familiar with this, right? One thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's embarking, right, Stephen? That's embarking. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I like that. He kept moving. He was determined to not let his past, he said, I forget what lies behind. And we can all think about that element and say, my past sin, your past sin. 
I'm telling you, there, are, there is that element. The devil will use it to say that familiar sin, that past sin, and he will try to keep us from pressing on in God. No, you did that, and you were so bad, and you were so wicked, and you committed that sin. You can never be used of God. Man, that's a lie of the devil. Or the other side of it is, is that there might be some great successes that we've enjoyed in the past. And then we just become complacent and say, well, it's a season for somebody else. I'll let them do it now. I think we just need to stay fresh in the Lord. And for Paul, embarking looked like keeping your hope in God, being rich in good works, <clears throat> and generous towards the things of God. This brings us to the main point of Zephaniah. It's found in chapter 2 and verse 3. This is the main point of what Zephaniah was calling the people of Judah to. And he says this. Zephaniah makes this statement. This is, this is it. This is what he wants us to do. He says this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. The rest of the book is made up of two other things, warning that judgment is coming to the proud, so you don't want to be proud. And the second half is promises that the humble and those who are righteous, who seek refuge in the Lord, the promise is you will be saved. So Zephaniah appeals for obedience to the command, the command to seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. I find it interesting, and it just floored me for a while. as I had to think about it and look at it and think and go to Matthew Henry and see what he had to say and others, these Puritans. And I thought that Zephaniah is calling for the humble of the land to seek humility and to seek righteousness. When it's the arrogant rascals, the arrogant idolaters who were the ones who were stagnant in spirit that needed to repent... But he says, you who are humble in the land, seek humility. And I believe what he is saying is that anyone in the land who is humble enough to submit to God's commands, here is what you should do and keep on doing. Stay humble, seek the Lord, and do righteousness. I realize that all of you are here today because you love the Lord, you love the church, you love the people of God, and you want to stay on mission. And I know that you are here because of your great love for Christ and his kingdom and your desire to hear the word of God, to be strengthened. And you are certainly the humble of the land. So let's adhere to Zephaniah's charge to stay humble, <laughs> seek righteousness, Seek the Lord. Seek humility. In other words, do that and keep on doing it. And that is what I would encourage all of us to do. He calls us to a deep humility. And that deep humility frees a person to seek God, which in turn, I believe, produces a righteous life. What is the result of those who... Seek the Lord and seek righteousness and seek humility. Remember, as I said at the beginning, that the warnings that Zephaniah brought was for Israel and the surrounding nations, right? The judgments was for Israel and 
the surrounding nations. So too, the promises that Zephaniah is giving, the blessings and the oracles of blessing that those who are obedient were to receive, they were not just for Israel, but they were also for the surrounding nations. Zephaniah 3.9 shows that God intends to save more than the Jews. Zephaniah 3.9, for at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. That's covenantal language. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord, the Lord and serve him with one accord. In other words, what Zephaniah is saying, he's telling us that the promised blessings flow out beyond the boundaries of Israel and they include you and I, who by faith in Christ, we become Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. Understand that you and I on this side of the cross, that it is us who take humility and refuge in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. We take refuge in that. It's not only the way of escape from divine wrath, it is the way of entrance into divine joy. And so we rejoice in that. So what is the result of those who respond to the prophet's threefold appeal to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness and seek humility? It's found at the end of the prophecy. It's in the middle of the oracles of blessing. And in verse 14, Zephaniah calls on the people to sing and to rejoice for God has taken away their judgments and he has removed their enemies. In other words, mercy has triumphed over judgment. So friends, when we gather together on the Lord's day and when we gather together in a holy convocation like this, we are to remember that God has taken away the judgments that were due to you and I because of our insubordination, because of our rebellion, because of our pride and our haughtiness, wanting to do things on our own terms. God has taken that judgment away and he's forgiven us all our sin and he has brought us into relationship with himself. And then... In verse 17, bump your neighbor. It's okay, maybe it's long, maybe it's 6 o'clock. Okay, bump your neighbor. I'm coming to the end, the pinnacle, the highlight, the moment you don't want to miss. You don't want to leave the room and go potty. You want to hang in there. <laughs> Zephaniah uses this incredible verse, which is the greatest verse, I believe, in all of the Old Testament. It is the verse that O. Palmer Robertson calls the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. What a great line. O. Palmer Robertson says that this verse you're about to see is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And he says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Oh, 
makes you never want to be complacent or stagnant before the Lord when you see what the, another translation, the NASB, which I love. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will be quiet in his love, or better, he will be silent. In other words, listen, he will make no accusations of you in his love. He will make no accusations in his, he will be quiet. Our sins, though they be many, the Lord will be quiet and not mention our sins. He will be quiet and make no accusation of your sin or mine. He will quiet you with his love. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's glorious. Oh, he will not remember our sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. Make no accusation. He will be quiet in his love towards you and I. And Zephaniah, he tells us, when all the repentant and humble and lowly sinners, we all gather before the throne of God, what will he do? Is he going to look down with disapproval of us? Is he going to look over the tops of our heads, scanning the crowds, you know, in indifference of who we are? Is he going to grieve that his flock is so shabby, so pitiful? No. He says he's going to rejoice with gladness, exalt over us with shouts of joy. He will exalt over you and I with great singing. Matthew Henry says, the great God not only loves his saints, he loves to love them. Isn't that beautiful? The great God loves to love you. We got to banish from our minds any thoughts that God somehow begrudgingly allows us to enter into his kingdom as though Christ found some loophole in the law and slid us by the judge of the whole earth. No, 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 no way. God himself, the judge, he put forth Jesus Christ. He put him forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, brothers and sisters, he welcomes you and I with bells on. He welcomes us and puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws a party and he shouts a shout that shakes the ends of the earth. This is our father. Someone may say, well, doesn't that seem a little bit unseemly, all this shouting and yelling and dancing and carrying on? (laughs) No. God calls us to emote. He calls you and I to, to express and to emote. You guys remember what happened to David's wife, Michael? Remember that? So when David danced with joy before the Lord and, and, and she despised his immoderate display of emotion. And what happened to her? The Lord struck her barren for the rest of her life because I believe God intends to be mightily enjoyed. Michael, she was spiritually deaf to the goodness of God. She was deaf to hearing the call to seek the Lord, to seek humility. And deaf people do not dance. And I'm here to say that David had ears to hear, and I believe we have ears to hear. And so there should be 
great celebration in the house of the Lord. Some may say, well, isn't it a little unseemly, undignified for our heavenly father to rejoice over us with loud singing and all of the ruckus? I read recently that Michelangelo, when he finished the work in the Sistine Chapel and completed that work, scaffolding was taken down, the drop claws were removed, the workers were sent home, and he was there. And he did one last view, one last walkthrough. You know how painters do a, a last walkthrough to make sure everything is just right. He did a walkthrough through the Sistine Chapel, which is visited by more than 5 million people every year. And he did a walkthrough. And it's recorded of, my, uh, recorded of Michelangelo when he looked up and he saw the creation of Adam, the finger of God. It says that tears flowed down his cheek and he began to rejoice that God enabled him to do such a work. So, did it belittle Michelangelo to rejoice over his work? No, not at all. Nor does it belittle God. When God has gathered millions of people to enjoy him for all eternity, when the divine work of my redemption and your redemption and the millions and millions of others that are gathered around his throne, that God, that he should break forth into singing and rejoice over you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all that he is. God will rejoice with a great rejoicing over the redemptive work of his dear son. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, seek the Lord, all you who are humble in the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Rejoice and exalt with all of your heart, O daughter of Zion. Embark. Say no to complacency and stagnation. Break out and embark. Make a splash. Make some noise. Let people know that God is a good God. And he's worthy of all of our effort. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.